Welcome to CMI School of Christ. Uh, we're going to start a new series here. This is the Gospel in the Feasts. There's one central motivation that characterizes the fallen soul. That nature says, I must do, do, do. The first man strives for glory. This king is always striving and trying to attain what is above who he is. An empty void filled with darkness. But the soul that's filled with the Spirit abides in rest. The soul in Christ simply says, done. In ignorance, the first said, I forced myself, therefore... I offered a burnt offering. That was King Saul in 1 Samuel 13, 12. But turn and see the heart of the second man. He says, I am mute. I do not open my mouth. For it is you. You have done it. That's King David. Psalm 39, verse 9. As a man according to God's own heart, David lived abiding in rest. The man of rest has always been the overarching theme and goal of the Word of God. He is the eternal covenant. Come to me, all you that labor and are loaded with burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke on you and learn from me because I am gentle and humble in heart and you shall find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30. The Sabbath marked the finished work of God in creation. After six days of working, Creating habitation for man, a warm place to live, filled with light, food, and drink. On the sixth day, God created man. The man was the ultimate achievement, the goal, the end, the fulfillment of God's purpose in creation. But the man was made to testify of something more than himself. Just as God had made a habitation for Adam, man was created to be the habitation and tabernacle for Yahweh's own Holy Spirit. All this was done in a precise order to point toward the person of Yeshua, the Messiah. Just as in the beginning, his creation was dark, empty void, and then afterward, it was filled with the light of his word. So the natural man was first and then afterward the spiritual. You know the verse. I'm, I'm always quoting 1 Corinthians 15, 46 and 47. It's been written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam, a life-giving spirit. 
The spiritual was not first, but the natural, and afterward the spiritual. And the first man was out of the earth earthly, the second man the Lord from heaven. That's the order. The order is first and second. When God created the world in the beginning, at the very beginning of the, of the scriptures, the earth was formless and empty. And darkness was over the face of the deep. And then God spoke and he said, let there be light. And there was light. And then there was the day. That, that evening and morning, the darkness and the light are a kernel, it's just, it, it, it's just a parable of what would be coming. The creation narrative is God's own parable of the gospel. His analogy shows that the six days of work foreshadowed a coming time when darkness and the death of Adam would reign under the law. And then the Sabbath day spoke beyond itself and it pointed towards the fullness of times. It was called the day and it was characterized by rest, light, the resurrection life of the Messiah, the new covenant. The New Testament confirms this gospel parable. And in Romans 13 verse 11 it says, besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to awake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far spent. English Standard Version says, the night's far gone. The day is at hand. So let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Paul's talking about putting on Christ, putting on the new man there. The creation account, though factual, was actually a prophetic testimony that prophesied of the coming of the second man, the Messiah, who is the finished work of God in a new creation. He's our true habitation, our place of rest. Jesus was always the Father's true pinnacle of rest. Adam's first day on earth, it was the Sabbath day. After that sixth day, God rested from all his works, not because he was tired, but because he was fulfilled. He was well pleased. He was satisfied. And in seeing that his first experience of Yahweh was of a God who's at rest, we are to take heart that our Heavenly Father is also well pleased because we are in Christ. We are His workmanship created in union with Christ Jesus. And just as you are in Him by faith, He's also in you. If you're born of the Spirit of God.
The lives of the men of God in the Old Testament also prophesied of Jesus. The events, the sacrifices, the rituals of the Old Covenant, they're not the only testimonies of Jesus. Just as Adam and Yeshua can be seen in contrast between King Saul and David, when Adam hid himself from the presence of God, he became a contrast, a man juxtaposed to the second man. He's no longer a testimony of Jesus. When Adam died, then the Lord raised up Noah as a testimony of the, the true man of rest. The scripture says his father Lamech called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that Yahweh has cursed, this one shall bring us rest from the work of of our hands, from the painful toil of our hands. That's Genesis 5, 28 and 29. So there's a theme of rest that continues through the days of Noah after the flood. When Noah sent a dove out from the ark to find rest, it returned with an olive branch. Then Noah saw that she had found rest for the sole of her foot. Genesis 8, 9. This points us towards the baptism of Messiah. The heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove upon him. And a voice came from heaven which said, you are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased. Luke 3, 21 and 22. Until his coming, heaven was closed. There was no peace. But in his appearing, heaven was open. His baptism is the fulfillment of the testimony of Jesus in the days of Noah. It declares Jesus to be the true new creation rest, a greater than Noah, in whom God's people live and move and have their being. He's the truer mountain that the ark landed on. And if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have come to an end, and the new has come. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Yahweh continues to weave this theme of rest all through the Old Testament. The rest is His end, it's His goal. And we read, the ark rested in the seventh month, on the seventeenth day of the month, upon the mountains of Ararat. So the terms ark, and the seventh, and rest, they're not lightly used. They're used to invoke a greater heavenly view, pointing beyond Noah in his day. These words will be used again all through the history of Israel. Rest will also describe the promised land. As Yahweh said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Exodus 33, 14. Again, rest will describe the goal and end 
of the journeying of God's people through earth. The term ark, which is a Hebrew word for gatherer, will be picked up and used again to describe the center or the heart of the very house of God. The ark of the testimony will be the seventh piece of furniture in the tabernacle together with its mercy seat. It will be made from a golden box that will be the only seat and resting place in the house of God. This gatherer is the throne of God. It is His rest. It is His end. It's God's picture of His Son within His house, the church. Noah. What does the word ark mean in Hebrew? It's a, it's a term that means gatherer. And so it re represents a box, kind of like in, in, in English. We would have a screwdriver. We'd name a tool for its function, for what it does. A screwdriver drives screws. Well, what's a box or a get, what, what's a basket? It's a gatherer. It's, it's, it's something that you put things in. And the fact that this ark is a testimony of Jesus, it testifies that Jesus is something that is someone that God would gather all men into. And it happened to have a mercy seat on it. That's a, a seat is a place of rest. These, all these terms, there's no coincidence. This gatherer is the throne of God. It is his rest. It is his end. It was God's picture of his son within his house, the church. The Ark of the Covenant or the Ark of the Testimony was carried by God's, through God's people throughout their pilgrimage in the wilderness until it was brought into the land of rest. And finally up to Zion, Mount Zion in Solomon's temple. As they sang, Arise, O Lord, into thy rest, Thou in the ark of thy strength. That's Psalm 132, verse 8. Because it's written, Yahweh, the God of Israel, has given rest to his people so that they may dwell in Jerusalem perpetually. Perpetually is a big deal. It speaks of eternally and outside of time. And also to the Levites, none are to bear the tabernacle, nor all of its vessels for service. First Chronicles 23, 25 and 26. Jesus Christ is this true rest and the gospel that God himself has declared. It shows us how that he has truly gathered and carried you. You have not carried God. Rest is the language of Yahweh's own gospel, testimony of His Son. For unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them. Hebrews 4, 2. Because the new covenant is a man, one new man, we're talking about Jesus. Ephesians 2.15 calls him one new man. God 
used the lives of men to paint the image of his son into a prophecy of Jesus. And the new covenant era, which is the day of the Lord. It shows us that the life of God's son is the eternal covenant. The new covenant is not a new set of commandments. The new covenant is not the New Testament. The new covenant is a person. He is a life. The new covenant is the person of Jesus Christ in you. Both the Old and the New Testaments testify of His coming in you. And so God's finished work on the sixth day testified of the one who is the gospel. He is the greater man of rest. Turn your heart to see and know him. Hear his word. He says, I am the true Sabbath day. Now the clearest evidence that the Sabbath day spoke beyond itself to the time of the new covenant day is manifest in the significance that Jesus was crucified on Friday, the sixth day of the week. It shows Yeshua as the man who alone has caused the heart of God to rest. He truly is the finished work of God in a person. The new covenant rest was ushered in together with his coming so that the cross of Christ is the fulfillment of a spiritual creation of God, the new creation. When Jesus died, Jesus of Nazareth, died as the last Adam. He died on the sixth day. He completely put away the first creation so that his life blood was given as a river of life flowing to the increase of one new man in Christ. He is the crowning head of a new spiritual creation, which is in Christ. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. And his declaration on the cross, it is finished, has established the cross as the inauguration of the new Sabbath rest, a new creation Sabbath. The new covenant day is fulfilled. And when we read in Psalm 118, the stone the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone it's marvelous in our eyes. This is the Lord's doing. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. It's speaking of the light of this world. Jesus Christ. Today is the day of God's favor because Adam was the goal and the culmination of a natural heaven and earth, and since he was created in the image of Christ crucified, therefore Christ in you is the pinnacle of the new creation, the new heaven and earth. His death on the sixth day takes away the first man, the first covenant. All the things of the first It's the removing of Adam. 
It is the establishment of Jesus as the second man, the Lord from heaven. And therefore, Jesus himself has always been the day of salvation. Wherefore, the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath to observe the Sabbath throughout their generations for a perpetual covenant. That's Exodus 31, verse 16. That's the American Standard. The Sabbath day was instituted by God weekly as a testimony of the new covenant day. These celebrations of rest were commanded as a regular holy day because they were intended to be signs. Galatians 1.14 says that the days were given as signs. And they, these signs pointed to something beyond themselves. The Sabbath pointed to the coming of Messiah. He is the eternal rest. The perpetuity of Christ, our covenant, shows that we are to abide in this one who is the same. Consistently, constantly, Jesus Christ is our whole relationship with God. Yesterday, today, and forever. This is much more than a lifestyle. He is the life. There never comes a time when you'll grow to the point where you'll be able to come before God in your own righteousness or in your own name. Yahweh accepts the person of Jesus, the Messiah, alone. By Him, we are made to live in a relationship of grace perpetually. The new covenant day is an eternal covenant. God created everything with Him in view. So that would be a testimony of Him. Jesus is the true Sabbath day. As workers together by Him, we also call on you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For He says... In an acceptable time, I hear you. And in the day of salvation, I'm helping you. Behold, now is the time of favor. Behold, now is the day of salvation. That's 2 Corinthians 6, 1 and 2. Paul's quoting Isaiah 49, verse 8. And he is interpreting, saying, when, when Isaiah speaks today, he's saying that that day, it is the light of Jesus Christ. And that day to, is today. Living in Christ is to abide in a perpetual relationship in Him. In Him, we have been made to bask in the true light that's above time. And as we go on, we're going to see that the Sabbath rest is the it's the goal of all the feasts of Israel. The Sabbath is the, is the feast that they kept every, you know, more than 52 times a year. And they kept it as a regular holy day so that it would represent a holy day that is above time and outside of time. Just like just like light can be broken down into different colors, white light can be broken down into, let's say, the three 
primary colors are yellow, blue, and red. And if you mix those colors, you can have seven colors. It's not a coincidence that, the, that, the, that there's one feast in truth, and it's the Sabbath. And those are all broken down into, I think it's Exodus 17 and 18. The Lord says, three times a year you shall appear before the Lord. And he calls them three feasts. And it's the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Ingathering. So the, so the, one, the one rest, the, the overarching theme of God's holy days, it is the Sabbath, and it's being broken down. In Leviticus 23, you have seven feasts. And I don't think it's a coincidence. It's like we have, if you're a musician, you understand there's seven notes in, in our Western scale. And if you gather up three of those, you have a three-note chord. You play chords. But if you, that's, that's the way it's broken down. But if it's all gathered up into the one, it's, the, it's just music. In that same way, I just want you to consider how this, this rest is the testimony of a light that's above of a covenant that's, that's above the world. Living in Christ is to abide in a perpetual relationship. In Him, we've been made to bask in the true light that's above time. In creation, things above were created to be very different from things below. This is another testimony of the truth as it is in Christ. Jesus said, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. That's John 8, 23. The law of gravity has a different effect above than it has below. The experience of time has a completely different different effect above than it does below. The earth below is full of shadows. But above, there are no periods of darkness. I'm talking about out in space, outside of the world. It speaks of the life of God where there is no shadow of turning, James tells us in James 1, verse 17. God created the natural light of the sun to be a consistent, perpetual day. From this perspective that's above, there's only ever been one day. From below, there's times and seasons, and therefore a testimony. God created the natural light of the sun to be consistent. Below, 
there's darkness at evening time, and yet above there is light. If you go to Zechariah 14, verse 7, it says, at evening time there is light. And he's speaking about the new covenant. It says it's like a day like no other. Whenever a heart truly experiences this translation out from self and into Christ, we're made to realize the reality of rest. From this divine perspective, we begin to see how they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Jesus said in John 17, 16, In His rest we come to know that our center of gravity has been completely changed from being in Adam and self. We've been placed in Christ, in His rest. His rest has become our rest. Because in His rest, He has raised us up together with Him and seated us together with Him in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 2, verse 6. He sat down at the right hand of God. And by virtue of your union in Christ, you are in His rest. The day of Christ is a day that's above the shadow of turning in the realm of the earth. The day that we are rejoicing in is not a 12-hour period of natural light. This day cannot be witnessed by the eyes of flesh. This view is known through the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of Him. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened says in Ephesians 1, 18 and 19, the natural light of the sun and the moon and stars was created on the fourth day of creation. That's the kind of light that's seen with natural sight. But only eyes of faith can witness the light of the original day. It is the light of the Word of God. It's the coming of the Word of God that divides the night from the day. The first from the second. God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 6. Those living by His light are called children of the day because... We are living by the light of His Spirit. It's fact that in the natural there's only ever been one day. It's the same day. Yesterday, today, and forever. And so the Sabbath day and the day of creation, they're just one day. And this really can only be witnessed in Christ from above. That day is today. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts, it says in Psalm 95, verses 7 and 8. Jesus spoke of only two ages, the first 
the old covenant, and the second, the new covenant. Where did Jesus speak of two ages? He said, truly I say to you, there is no one who's left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time. I talking about before the cross. He's talking about in the first age. In this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecution and in the age to come, that's the new covenant, in the age to come, eternal life. You are now in the day that Jesus described as the age to come. You have eternal life now. A lot of people consider eternal life to be the same as everlasting life. But eternal life is a different kind of life. It's God's divine life placed in you by His Holy Spirit. It is salvation. 1 John 5.13 says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know, know what? That you have eternal life. You have eternal life now. You are in the age to come. Now there's plenty of arguments. There's always arguments against the truth. The earthly soulish man has invented theologies, dividing the ages into seven different dispensations. The view is called dispensationalism. It's a view that is in conflict with the teachings of Jesus and the Word of God. It's an interpretation that puts false words into the mouth of Jesus. It says well, what Jesus really meant is that we are stuck in the sixth age. We're waiting for the seventh messianic age. And people, just get ready because it's almost here. And forever it's almost here. And this is not in accord with the Word of God. It's a false hope based on a false understanding. If you're born of the Spirit, you have already tasted of the powers of the coming age. That's Hebrews 6, verse 5. How can you taste of something that isn't already present? The first old covenant age ended at the cross. The writer of Hebrews says, Now, once for all, at the complete end of the ages, he has been manifested for the putting away of sin through the sacrifice of himself. He's talking about the cross. At the complete end of the ages. It's now you're in the new covenant. It's plainly written here in the scripture that the cross completely ended all the ages. That's plural. The new covenant day is the fullness of time. It's the fulfillment of time. Well, Daniel, are, are, you're ignorant of the scriptures. There, there are scriptures that talk about ages beyond the cross. Oh, 
Well, I didn't forget these verses, you guys. Ephesians 3, verse 7, said that he might demonstrate in the ages to come the exceeding great riches of his grace and kindness. Well, what about that? You guys, there's no contradiction in the scriptures. What he's talking about here is in the mind of man, there's all kinds of ages. These are ages God doesn't recognize. The Holy Spirit sees two ages. He sees the age that was a testimony of his son. God used natural, tangible things, things of the flesh, to testify of the person of Christ, the, the spiritual man. And when Christ was come, that which was natural, material, was put away. He takes away the first that he might establish the second. Jesus died as the last Adam. Many of the last shall be first, and the first shall be last. I'm telling you that, yes, in the natural, man recognizes ages. We think of the Stone Age. We think of the, the Iron Age, the Bronze Age. Well, people have called the, this the information age. We may be in the very beginning of the genetic age now that they have modified, that mankind has changed his DNA. But these are not, these, these are not ages that God recognizes. God does not look on Adam. He has his eye fixed on his son. Today is the day of salvation. And though this stands in contrast to empty, fundamentalist Christian religion. It is the mind of Christ. It is the faith of the Son of God. The faith is God's own view of His Son. And I trust that you're sh just shaking off the grave clothes of false religion. And they are being shaken off in the sight of Jesus. And in seeing His coming, we find that fundamentalist religion has just fallen to the earth, empty and dark, separated from the presence of life himself. It's another Christianity. Fundamentalist Christian religion is not Christianity at all. But true Christianity is Christ living in a people He is in you. And when He appears, we shall see Him as He is. He is in His people. And in seeing Him, we find empty religion to be nothing other than fundamented. It's demented because it's 
has its origin in the mind of man. It's false. You are in the new covenant today. It's plainly written that the cross completely ended all the ages. And you are not in a sixth age waiting for a seventh age to begin. There's no third age. You are in the Sabbath age now, today. And this is one of the main points of the whole book of Hebrews. Whenever we live or work out from our own life, the life of our soul, then our works are rejected. God does not even look on your work. According to God's own view, you've never lived out from the life of your soul or out from your flesh. This was the outward man. God sees you in His Son, in Jesus Christ, because He looks on the heart, and His view is the truth. He sees His Son in you. Jesus is your spirit. He is the inward man because He is your core. We need to be made to see what God sees, the, the one that God sees. Seeing Him is freedom from external religion because it's His presence that's already made you clean. Just as He said, you're already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. You're perfect as our life. His coming is the end of the attainment of the flesh. And that's why we do not preach ourselves, that is, our own righteousness, or us becoming anything. But Jesus Christ is already our everything. You are saved by Him, by His death, by His burial, by His resurrection. We follow Him because He has already saved you. He's already been made your salvation. He is even salvation from ourselves, from your soul, which is you. You live by Him. He is your spirit. You as a soul were made to be dead in Christ. John 12, 24 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, if a kernel of wheat falls into the earth and refuses death, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life, that's the life of his soul. It says suke there in the original language. Whoever loves the life of his soul loses it, and whoever hates his soul life in this world will keep it for eternal life. You were crucified with Christ, and by new birth his spirit was placed within your soul, displacing you from the throne of your own heart. He's more than your spirit. He is the spirit. He is the life, your only life. Through His death, your soul was made to be dead. And by His resurrection, you made to be alive by Him and in Him. And so the Father looks on your life as a life animated by the divine life of His own Son. 
in this your life is a life that's acceptable, even favored because of Yeshua. This one has finished the work. He sat down at the right hand of God, instituting a perpetual, even eternal new covenant rest. He's also sat down on the throne of your heart, beckoning you to enter into this rest, saying, come to me, all you who labor and who are loaded down with burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke on you and learn of me. I am gentle and humble in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. Therefore, he alone is rest for your soul. Jesus was God. Before his coming, no high priest had ever sat down in the Holy of Holies. But Jesus, having been raised from the dead, sat down at the right hand of God. Indeed, every priest stands day by day, ministering and often offering the same sacrifices, which can never take away the sins. But he, offering himself by one sacrifice for sin, sat down in perpetuity or forever at the right hand of God. That's Hebrews 10, 11 and 12. Some teach what they believe is a a high priest that's busily working and on his knees praying. They have a notion of a great high priest continually working busily in heaven. See, but this comes from a view of separation from Christ. It's not one of union. When the high priest showed himself to Israel on the Day of Atonement, then God's people were made to see their union in him. Only in His appearing were they able to look and see and behold how good and pleasant is the dwelling place of brethren, even in union together, as the good oil is poured out over the head, coming down over the head, and the beard of Aaron, that coming down in the skirt of his robe, the dew of Hermon, that coming down on the hills of Zion, for there... Yahweh commands the blessing. Do you see what is being declared here in Psalm 133? He shows this high priest as a testimony of the place of God's blessing. He likens him to the land of Israel, the promised land, the land of rest. Notice how both the high priest and the land of Israel depict Jesus Christ, our rest. And if you compare Exodus 28 with Revelation 21, verses 18 through 20, and the vestments of the high priest, you'll see how the garments of beauty and glory depict Jesus Christ, the church, in union with Him. He is the head where it says holiness to Yahweh. He's head and body in our holiness as it is to the Lord and the anointing, the, the flowing down 
It's in the head. And the new Jerusalem is in the breastplate of judgment. And so spiritual Israel identifies as a new Jerusalem abiding in the body of the great high priest, not separate from him. The book of Hebrews contrasts unending annual sacrifices with the permanence of one offering once for all time. The notion of Christ busily praying for us comes from a carnal mind, creating an image of Christ after his own restless likeness. Yes, our great high priest ministers presently, but his ministry is established from a place of rest. In the same way as a house ministers shelter and rest without any activity, so also Christ is seated at the right hand as the habitation and abode of the church. But he's more than our house from heaven. He's a whole new man. As our death, he brings us and our nature to an end. And as our head, he ministers the holiness of his own righteousness and identity. As our life, he motivates our hearts both to will and to do his good pleasure so that we can rest from our soulish religious labor. Trying to impersonate Jesus trying to be pleasing to God. And when we have come into His rest, then it is not I, but Christ living in me. My only work is to not work. My only declaration is not to speak. My only life is Christ and to be an expression of Him. Therefore, while the promise of entering into his rest stands, let us therefore fear, unless any one of you think you may have fallen short. This Sabbath day, it's a day above. And it's just like you were commanded to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength. And, and the Lord Jesus gathered this up as the whole of all the law. The Sabbath is also one of these commandments. The whole of God's commandment can be gathered up in it. And Yahweh speaks to Moses. Say to the sons of Israel, saying... You keep my Sabbaths only, for it is a sign between me and you to your generations that you may know that I, Yahweh, sanctify you. Just as the whole of the law is summed up in loving Yahweh with all your heart and entering into his rest is the key of all the commandment. Whenever our heart enters into his rest, the work of man ceases and the work of God stands. The Sabbath day is a testimony of the fullness of time. The Sabbath points to the completion of last things because it's always pointed to the complete satisfaction of God's purpose. It's an, the Sabbath is an eschatological. It's, a, it's something that speaks of the very goal, the end. Yes, the Sabbath was a particular day. 
In Genesis, it says when Cain was not tilling the ground as he normally did and Abel was tending his sheep, on this day they met with the Lord after the sixth day and they brought him an offering. It says in Genesis 4, verse 3 and 4, and it comes to pass in the end of days that Cain brought to Yahweh an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And Yahweh looked on Abel and his offering. He did not look on Cain. He did not look on Cain's offering. It's, it's very significant that that. This description of the Sabbath in the testimony is called the end of days. The end of days spoken of here is the Sabbath. It's a description that's so often misrepresented by our guilty conscience to speak of future doomsday. But originally, the end of days was all about Time being brought to its goal and complete purpose. This is God's view of the end of days. The Holy Spirit also uses the time of life, the age of favor, the fullness of times. There's other descriptions of the Messianic covenant age. And as we go on, we'll see the Messiah. We'll use this, these words end and also the last in the same sense is the fulfillment of God's view of time. He says in John 7, verse 39, in the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, if any man thirst, let him come here to me and drink. Anyone who believes into me, as the writing has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. When Jesus says the last day, he is showing himself to be the fulfillment of a greater measure of time. It's of the day that's above. What do you mean? Just like in music, if you have seven notes and the eighth note, is, it's an octave higher than this, but it's the same. The eighth day is the day after the Feast of Tabernacles. It speaks of the time when, during the Feast of Tabernacles, they would offer 40 sacrifices, and then they tapered it down to 12, and then there was six, and then there was three, and then there was one sacrifice, once for all. And then the day after the seventh, the eighth day, was the day that the high priest would go out, and he would take a pitcher of water out from the pool of Siloam and he would pour it on the sacrifice, he would pour it on the altar, show as to, showing as to washing away the blood and a river of living water would flow. It shows that this is the end of the sacrifices. It's over. And these rituals were not commanded by God. They were, they were, done, yes, traditionally as a thanksgiving 
But they became what is a day above time, to, to testify of the day of Christ. And this, the eighth day, it was the day of fullness. And over and over, you're, there's just like, it's not a coincidence that Noah was the eighth man on the, in, in the ark, that David was the eighth son, that all the children of Israel were circumcised on the eighth day, that Israel was the eighth nation in Canaan, that all these things are fulfilled. They all point to the day of Christ, the day of the age. It's the light of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And it's to be seen with, in your heart, not with eyes of flesh. Father, we just ask you to just gather these things up and cause us to see your Son. Let our hearts know you. beauty of your holiness and your righteousness. We thank you for your life. And your beautiful glory. We just ask you to have your way with us. And that's a good stopping point. I hope these uh, these sharings are a blessing to you. Please Feel free to contact me and write at Daniel underscore Edward underscore Brown at yahoo.com. I'd love to hear from you.